to The Compete Waffle. My name is Alicia. I'm an advanced sports dietitian and co-founder of Compete Nutrition. Now, over the last couple of months, one of our team members has been very busy interviewing all of our crew, um, crew members, basically. So all the way from Dan and I, um, our Hermes, who else has she interviewed? Seriously, she's been stalking all of us and her name is Michaela. So you have probably come across her if you have been a longer listener of The Compete Waffle. Michaela is one of our team members. She is, oh man, there's no other way to explain this girl other than a complete powerhouse in the best possible sense. She is not only a sports dietitian and accredited dietitian, she is also someone who has absolutely been immersed into sport and activity her whole life. And you can just tell that this is such a core part of her identity and what has really shaped her now incredible work ethic, um, her drive for success and um, just always wanting to achieve continuous improvement. So she's now very active within the boxing scene. Um, she's also a professional female rug rugby player. But just to complement all of that in that um, really combative sense, she's also an extremely talented dancer and dance coach. So. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she fits it all in a day, but she absolutely does. And she'd probably say the same to me. She's like, oh gosh, I don't know how you do it. But together we get shit done. And for that reason, I think there's this, this incredible mutual respect. Um, and oh, it was this year actually, she started doing some contract um, dietitian work with us last year. And she just kept going, there has to be more work. I want to be more involved. Give me some more stuff to do. And Look, it got to the point where we just couldn't ignore her uh, in, the, in a really positive way. And when COVID hit, she lost a lot of her work um, because she was involved in a lot of the face-to-face -face coaching stuff. And we're like, well, this is an opportunity to snag this girl. Um, and so we we're able to offer her a few days a week, which grew to full-time very quickly. Um, and yeah, now she is just integrated well and truly into our team. She's like my right-hand girl. Um, and together with Hermes, Andrew, Dan, and now more recently as we've just got this core team that um, I just feel extremely grateful for. So to have the opportunity to now talk to Michaela and get to know her even more so in a, um, a personal sense has been a really cool opportunity. Um, so I kind of just said, Michaela, there's no way you're getting out of this. You are absolutely also going to have a compete conversation episode. And so we booked it in. We had a few little snags along the way as the COVID second wave hit Victoria where she's based. Um, but we finally got the opportunity to um, sit down and chat. I know you're going to love this episode. We talk a lot about her journey as a child growing up. But I think the biggest thing that hit home for me was not only her relationship with exercise and her drive for success and where that's really stemmed from, I think the biggest takeaway from me is her personal story around eating disorder. Um, her sister uh, struggled with an eating disorder for many, many years. And hearing of the family impact of that has really um, hit me hard in a really good way of just having, um, I think, an improved empathy of what this condition and disease can really play a part in, um, really impact so much of our lives. So um, I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. We um, you know, we're both pretty good talkers. We're, we're definitely both part of the waffle for really good reason. Um, and yeah, so I am going to stop waffling on that note um, and introduce you to the incredible Michaela Welty. Cheers.
Well, welcome, Michaela, to the Compete Waffle. You have been interviewer a few times, and I've decided to switch it up a little bit and get you on as a guest. So, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you have had quite um, a big, shall I say, few weeks uh, lately. So, you're currently residing in Sydney, but that's because a whole lot's gone down in your world in the last few weeks. How, do you, how are you holding up? Yeah, it's been interesting. I tell you what, 2020 is definitely going to be a year to remember. It's um, going down in the history books. I, I was having a conversation with my mum not too long ago about how back when I was in school, they were talking about how the aim is to eradicate poverty by 2020 and 2020 was going to be this big year of real big achievements. And I just mm. feel like it's almost like the world's turned around and said, F you, this is yeah. a big year of real achievements. Um, I'll show you what, what what's going to happen in 2020. So, yeah. I mean, it's been nuts. And I just always bring it back to there is always someone who is worse off than I am. And I am very privileged um, in what I have and the opportunities I have and the people I have around me. So, yes, it's mm. been tough, um, yeah. but I obviously I'm not alone in that. And some days I want to sit in my bed and cry. And other days I'm like, you know what? I'm so much stronger than this and there's so many things to be thankful for. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it's just riding that roller coaster of emotions and being okay with it. Like it's okay to have a shit day. It's okay yeah. to feel happy in a time that's not happy for a lot of people in the world. Mm. Um, I think we're, we're all often too hard on ourselves and too judgmental of other people. And we don't really take the time to be empathetic. Um, mm. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting, but that's what makes life special, hey? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a really important reflection around that comparison emotion. And just because someone might have it harder doesn't mean that you can't be sad or you can't be upset. Um, and just because someone has it harder doesn't mean that you can be happy. And I really like that. I think that's a really big thing that a lot of people struggle with. Uh, and we've got to really make sure that we're paying attention to those emotions and actually respecting them and just being curious and taking that one step forward of just recognizing what we're feeling and going from there because we aren't our emotions but they do impact us daily <laughs> um yeah no you've had a massive few weeks so i've i've written out a few questions but i definitely am not as organized as you are with your podcast interviews i i find since i've met you it's been such an epic journey like just getting to know you as a person um I think at the start I was like whoa this girl is like a powerhouse and intimidating she's like so sure of so many things in a really positive sense like I've never had a negative sense of like that um confidence but I was like wow where does that stem from so I'd love to kind of hear about your childhood are you originally from Melbourne yeah yeah, yeah. so Melbourne born and bred but um yeah, first generation. So my dad's, um, my mum's French and my dad's English. So yeah. No accent? No. Oh, my parent, my, do you know what? My grandparents have been in Australia for 50 years and they still yeah. have really strong accents. Like, yeah. Hard to, but they still speak French at home. Um, yeah. My dad's been here since he was 17 yeah. and he still says some weird things. Like he says Saturday still and Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And- um, and then when he gets really mad, he goes into this weird, like, English slash pommy, like, Aussie, bogan. It's very straight. But oh, it's only good. sometimes, like, he's very bogan now compared to what it used to be. But, um, yeah. yeah, he still gets called pommy by his mates. And good. there's still certain things that he says. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he English. <laughs> that is so cool. Have you got any French cuisines in your home then? 
Oh no, not really. Like, not really? I am, and it's funny because my grandparents um, obviously still speak French. My mm. great grandparents are Italian, but mm. it's um, my grandparents are really big in the multicultural societies yeah. in Melbourne. So they're part yeah. of the Egyptian club. They're part of an Italian club. Mm. Um, so we've actually grown up with a lot of different cuisines, yeah. but not French. It's yeah. funny. So like we'll go over to my grandparents' house and we'll have baklava, for example, for dessert. And we'll have, um, you know, we went over just when restrictions originally lifted in Victoria because um, mm. my my grandpa had to have surgery. So we didn't see him for a while. And um, we went over there and they made us these like um, Greek pastries and then they made us a cheese wheel and mm. none of it's French, but it's not- all very multicultural. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. So I really love that. Why do you think they've really... Um, dived into that multicultural, um, I guess, space in Melbourne. Do you think it was trying to find that belonging once they moved over here or do you think it was just this natural curiosity to really embrace all these different cultures? Um, I don't know. It's a really good question. I mean, my grandparents came to Australia um, with literally nothing to their names. Mm. Um, my They met when my grandma was 16, had my mum at 17, married at 18, so very kind of common, I suppose, for that era. Um, they came to Australia and my nan went to night school, became an accountant. Both my grandparents now are life members of CPA um, or CA. They're probably going to get angry at me for getting that wrong. <laughs> There's two different ones in there. Anyway, yeah, I um, but I think they, they, they did everything for themselves. My nan moved her whole family across from France and mm. also looked after my, my grandpa's mum. Um, she was very much, I, I guess I look at my mum's side of the family and I look at it as a matriarch, not a patriarch, mm. um, <clears throat> very strong minded woman, my nan. And, mm. um, yeah, they kind of, I don't know the multicultural side of things. They've just been real, really social, um, mm. in their, I don't know, their, their day to day and. Yeah, it's a great question. I should have to, yeah. I should really should ask them because I don't know. They're just, I think I'm just curious because, like, they haven't necessarily gone to the culture that they're from. They've really wanted yeah, to no. just expand completely. Do you feel like that's been part of your upbringing too, is being very open to different um, cultures and having that, um, I guess, as part of the way that you've grown up or not as much because it was one generation separated? Um, I think I've, I've grown up in a family that's very open to everyone and it doesn't, mm. I, I don't know. I've, yes, obviously I come from quite a privileged white background and um, I, I, from the outside, people would probably look in and say, it's your typical, you know, Anglo-Saxon family mm. um, being my dad from England and um, our, our appearance as well. But I don't think I've ever been taught that, one person's bad and the other's not with, mm. I don't know, my, my family have always very open. They always have open doors to anyone who needs help. Um, mm. And it's funny, like I think prior to finishing high school, I probably did have a bit of a blanket over my eyes in regards to a lot of different cultures. Like I'd never been friends with um, anyone from the Pacific islands before I went to a Catholic or girls school in high school. So I was surrounded by a lot of Italians mm. um, uh, quite a number of Chinese were at our school, a couple of Indians. So we had culture within our high school, but not all cultures. Mm-hmm. And it actually wasn't until I graduated from high school and moved into playing rugby that I was, my eyes were open to this completely different world. Um, yeah. 
the Pacific Islands and the majority of my really close friends now are Tongan, Samoan, um, Maldi, uh, from the Cook Islands. Mm. And I just, I've probably learned more from that group of friends and their yeah. families in the last two years than yeah. I probably would ever learn from my own family. Um, and that's nothing against obviously my own family. Like, you know what you know, you don't know mm. what you don't know. Mm. Um, but I just think my values and my assurance of myself in the last five years has really come down to being exposed to this Pacific Island community and how they treat each other and yeah. the values that they have. It ju- it's just mind blowing. Like, and it really breaks my heart because I look at how many times, um, people are discriminated against in the Pacific Island community and mm. how they don't have everything that I had growing up, for example, mm. but yet they're so humble and they're so kind and empathetic and mm. welcoming. Like mm. there's a joke that goes around the um, kind of rugby community in Victoria that I'm the token white girl. Um, and <laughs> I, I guess I've never been called that because yeah. I've always been in predominantly white situations. Mm. And it's almost like, yes, I now know how it feels a little bit to be the different one in the group, but they never make you feel different. Like I walk into their households and they call me their their daughter and their sis. Mm, I'm their sis. And I'm allowed to call them auntie and uncle. And yeah, so I don't think that that's come. I think that was a really roundabout answer, but I don't think um, my awareness of culture and my appreciation of other cultures has come Mm. so much from my family, even though my grandparents are in amongst a lot of multicultural societies um, I think it's actually come later in life in my adult years in the last kind of 36 to 48 months where I've yeah. um, really engulfed myself in the rugby community and Pacific Island community. And then on top of that, my, my partner is from Africa. So yes. his side of the family has also um, taught me some different cultures when it comes to um, his Namibian background. So yeah. yeah, it's just the people I've been exposed to. And as I said earlier, it's not you know, you only know what you know, you're only yeah. exposed to what you're exposed to. So mm. it does come with life experience to have appreciation for that. Absolutely. And did you do much um, traveling as a child? Yeah. So I definitely think that's probably another thing that we've always been a really open family to mm. um, different cultures and being really welcoming and loving to learn about them because yeah. my dad um, traveled a lot for his job. Um, so we were very, very fortunate, my sister and I, to travel the world as really young kids. Um, yeah. Even before I'd become an adult, I'd been to probably 15 different countries. Yeah. Um, and that's all because of my dad's work. Um, you know, he had frequent flyer points that we used and um, mm. we traveled with him and we have family overseas. So we'd be able to go overseas and stay with them. So um, yeah, we, me and my sister were very, very fortunate to be exposed with such amazing travel opportunities as we were younger. Um, and I suppose that's built confidence in myself as well, being able being okay with being by myself and being yeah. in an uncomfortable environment and knowing how to look after myself when I'm not, you know, in that home setting. Which yeah, there's definitely like words that come to mind when I think of Michaela and re- resilience is one of them. And I think that independent side and that ability to shift and change and adapt depending on the situation that you've been delivered is one of those real positives in your um like upbringing obviously and also just how much you've seen and experienced and when we look at um i guess that culture piece i had this really good question i've totally lost it but (laughs) i will go 
You can't even use the afternoon as an excuse. So we No, we, this is the morning, everyone. Yeah, it's the morning. We always laugh about having afternoon meetings because yeah, yeah. I feel sorry for Dan and Hermes and Andrew because me and Lee just go nuts when it hits like three o'clock. We I had no attention span. Like zero attention span. Like it is a shocking time to ever hold a meeting. Um <laughs> So I'll just continue because, hey, let's not, let's not have this massive pause on a podcast because although you're okay with silence, Michaela, I don't think people on the podcast are going to love a, um, a silence while I try and think of the um, answer that I'm thinking of. Um, it's a question that I'm thinking of. So for those playing at home that haven't experienced Michaela's epicness in all things sport, can you, I guess you have chosen sports for what, since I've known you in the last 12 months or so that are quite aggressive for the outsider, but also very combative and um, things like rugby and boxing. Have you always loved that side of sport or is that something that you've really found a passion for later in life? Um, it's funny, you, if you spoke to uh, anyone that's close to me or even have probably listened to my 18th birthday and 21st birthday speeches from front of yeah. some of my relatives and friends, I've always been a bit of an oddball when it comes to um, kind of testing social norms. Yeah. Um, I've never been one to want to conform. I've always wanted to, I've always found a thrill of being not what people expect. And um, yeah, I like that. So just to give you a bit of an insight, I, I've been a dancer for 22 years. Um, and my mom was a dancer. She loves dancing. And I think she always had the dream that she'd have a daughter that was a dancer. And I have an older <laughs> sister. Yeah. Um, and we both started dancing, but I, I just took to it quite well when I was a kid and did gymnastics and stuff. But I always had this bit of um, boyishness to me. I was always the tomboy in primary school. Um, you know, I was always playing AFL and cricket. Um, so I, in my primary school years, I got selected to play for the Victorian team for cricket. Um, I was playing AFL and a very vivid memory I have was I would go at 7.30 in the morning and play AFL. And then I'd jump in the car and straight after my game and I'd have baby wipes and I'd oh be God. wiping myself down the mud off me from head yeah. to toe. Um, and it was probably a 20 minute gap from leaving football to getting to dancing. Oh, wow. And I'd be wiping myself down with baby wipes. I'd run into dancing in my footy gear and then I'd come out of the bathrooms with my ballet tights on, my ballet skirt and my leotard. And then I'd go and dance from kind of nine in the morning till about six o'clock at night. Um, and it was you know, I still get these memories brought up by some of my dancing friends. We're obviously all adults now and they used to just laugh that I would run in and, and be this real boyish kid um, coming out of my footy gear and then putting my ballet skirt on and becoming this like prissy little blonde yeah, yeah. dancer. Um, so I think it was more just having the best of both worlds. I think I got into the contact sport side of things. My dad has been really big in rugby coming from England. It was always rugby in the winter and cricket in the summer for him. Mm. And so he wanted a son and he never got a son. Um, you know, he, him and my mum used to laugh about how they spoke about having a third child, but dad refused because he was so scared it was going to be another girl. girl. Um, so he, and my name's Michaela, just to give a little bit of context. My name's Michaela. My Pop Michael, my dad's dad's name's Michael, and I'm named after him. He passed away when my dad was only eight years old. Mm. So um, I think my dad's always kind of had a bit of a special connection. I'm definitely daddy's little girl, and we've had a really special connection from the beginning. And I kind of turned into that back in the 90s, the son he never got, which doesn't fly these days. Like I probably wouldn't say that if I was having a kid now and mm. if she was a female and she was in contact sport, but mm. it was a joke that we had 
kind of going up and it was a badge of honor for me. Like I was yeah. proud to be that kid that could do both. Yeah. Um, so, you know, also on Saturdays, you'd see me running out with my own customized Box Hill Rugby Club jersey and running the first grade boys out. Um, I was probably the size of a, a five-year-old when I was about eight and I had an oversized jersey on and there's pictures of me all over the walls of the Box Hill Rugby Club of me running mm. out the first grades when my dad used to coach. So I was always around contact sport. And then from yeah. there, my love of team sports grew. And in high school, um, I completed, we had 15 sports offered at my high school. Mm. Um, and the maximum you could do was 11 of the 15 because um, you weren't allowed to miss so many days of school. And of course, I was the only student in my whole time at Avalar to do all 11 sports that I physically could do out of the 15. Um, and and I, I look back at it now and the, probably the reason that I did that many sports is because I just wasn't a real girly girl and I wasn't interested in sitting down at lunchtime mm. and bitching mm. um, and gossiping, mm. which was really mm. common in the school that I was at. Um, mm. You know, so I would use sport as a reason to go and train at lunchtimes and not have Love to be that. around um, the bitchiness. And it was funny because yeah. a lot of the time I had a really great group of girlfriends at high school mm. um, and I'm still friends with a lot of them now. And we were a real diverse group. Um, mm. my, my best friend who I actually live with, she was um, very much the academic of our group, SRC. She's now a radiographer. There was me who was known as a sporty one. Um, we had another girl that was really arty and became, did graphic design and, and fashion. Mm. And so we had a really kind of diverse group in, in my group of friends and I'd come back after lunch and they'd all run to me and be like, Oh, this is the drama that's happening. Whose side are you going to take? <laughs> I never found myself caught in the middle, which was good. Yeah. Like I found that I was in the drama. I was on the kind of the outskirts, but also mm. getting all the intel. Um, yeah. so I found that it was a good outlet for, um, yeah, being away from that. Cause it's just not my vibe. I'm not, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I hated being at an old girl school. I really didn't want to go to an old girl school. I only went because my sister chose that school and mum wanted mm. us to be both at the same school, which I look mm. back at now. And don't get me wrong, the school I went to and my education was great. Um, I, I did really well at school. I'm where I want to be now. Um, but in terms of the environment, I didn't really love being there. Yeah. Um, so I used sport as my release and, mm. um, and training. So, yeah, I guess in a long-winded response to your question, I have always yeah been a little bit left of field with, crushing social norms and yeah sport for me does that like yeah I love that I really love that and I love seeing strong like this is the thing that I adore about all things activity for you is just it's all about function and strength and yeah I and I can see that dancing just translating to <laughs> when you're when you're boxing I'm sure that agility definitely translates oh the footwork for sure <laughs> I've um I've been cold twinkle toes a couple of times yeah. around the studio so it definitely yeah, helps yeah. the coordination side of things for yeah. sure. Now you've obviously had lots of um I guess sporting experience in as an actual athlete. Dancing really does ring true for me when I'm asking this question but also then in the team sport environment of rugby um in that professional sense. Um what's the discussions around body composition like as an athlete in the dancing space and how does that compare or is it very similar but just different goals when we're talking about like the rugby or um other team-based sports um really good question i think what i love most and i the first thing i do want to say is body image issues and body composition discussion is a real problem in all sports um I've been a part of a lot of sports, mm -hmm. mainly team-based. I'm not, 
I'm not an endurance sports um, kind of person in terms of myself and my own athletic ability. Um, team sports, definitely, it's it's an issue. And unfortunately, more often than not, I have seen it come from above, um, from management, which really grinds my gears. Um, but with regards to rugby, what I do love about it from a athlete's point of view is there's literally a position for every single body type. Mm. So, and I think, you know, I played AFL through high school because rugby wasn't available um, between the ages of under 12s and women's. There was Mm. never a youth girls competition. There is now, which is amazing, but there wasn't when I was in high school. So I did transition to AFL before coming back to rugby. Mm. Um, And the reason I reckon I love rugby more than AFL is because it literally, as I said, doesn't matter what your body type is, whether you're short and um, a bit stockier, whether you're really, really tall and lean, whether you're small and real quick on your feet, Mm. um, whether you're a power runner and real muscular, there is literally a position for you no matter what you look like or what Mm. your body composition is. Um, So that's great, but that doesn't mean that there isn't talk about ideal body composition and being told that you can't play a position because of your body type. That definitely still happens. Um, And I think, I don't know, I, I don't think there's much of a sensitivity as in rugby as there is in dancing. And I say that Mm. because in the Pacific Islander community, being bigger isn't a bad thing, Mm. you know, they they love their food. They love their culture, you know, big is beautiful. Mm. And, and that's amazing to me to watch because I'm like, you know, people care more about what they, what they do and what you say and how you act than what you look like. And that's a massive thing that's very different in my opinion, to what I've seen growing up. Um, mm. And my elder sister had a very severe eating disorder and probably one of the reasons I became a dietitian. Um, and it was seeing her worth in what she looked like, um, which was really hard to watch. Whereas yeah. in the Pacific Islander community, which is quite large within rugby union, um, mm. it's not about what you look like. It's about what your heart, like who you are in, inside. Um, so that's really good. So it's not as sense as sensitive, but in regards to comments coming from coaches and management, mm. that's where the issues lie. So basing selection off whether you're weighing a certain amount has been brought up in conversation, mm. which kills me. And it's not mm. just in fe- it's not just in the female sports. If anything, it's worse with the men. And man, it grinds my gears. Like, yeah. and I'm if I have an issue with something, I don't hesitate to say it, um, obviously in the most respectable way. Um, but I just think if you don't voice opinions and if you don't bring something to the forefront of someone else's mind, mm. it's never going to change. So we've yeah. got to have people out there willing to put themselves on the line and speak about these things because yeah. it's not okay. And I know it happens in AFL as well. Like I've worked in AFL as a dietitian and it happens there. So it's mm. not specific to a sport. Yeah. Um, with regards to dance, it's very different conversation again, unfortunately, um, particularly more so in the traditional dance environment. So you're thinking your classical ballets, um, you, you know, your real specific, um, I guess, contracts like your Moulin Rouge contracts. The great thing is the commercial world is changing with dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, commercial world, yes, it's about a look, but it's also about the, the vibe that you bring. Mm. quotation marks so you know good for, good for a podcast those quotation yeah, marks just, yeah yeah really good for the, 
Um, so the commercial world's really good with dancing in the sense that if you can fit the style they want in terms yeah. of movement, um, then you know they don't they don't always care what your body mm. composition is. However, there's also always a picture that they're looking for. So it's the same on Broadway and within musicals. Like they're looking for a certain character, and if you don't fit that character, then you're not going to get the job. Mm. But that doesn't always come down to what you in terms of your body composition. A lot of the time, it might be your skin tone, your hair color, your height, mm. um, which is unfortunate because you you obviously you're getting judged, but it's um it's definitely changing um in the commercial world but the classical world of dance um yeah it's still mm. a massive issue mm. massive have issue. you ever like obviously you've been within both the dance world and then now the rugby world um have you ever felt the pressure of that or have you been quite strong in terms of your body image and holding to that or have you found yourself swaying too far into the pressures of that and seeing any negatives or um having questioning thoughts well, it's funny because I think, oh, I think every, uh, like everyone had at some stage doubts themselves. There's no mm. doubt about that. You know, it's shoved in our face every day on social media. This is what you should look like. And it's, and, and don't get me wrong, talk to me 10 years ago and it's probably a very different conversation. Mm. But I think one, seeing what my sister went through um, and then as a result, what my family went through Um that played a big role of me becoming confident and sure of situations more mm. than anything else, which is quite crazy to think um, because I was quite young at the time when it started. Like I was only in year seven yeah. um, when that first happened. But um, I think now, I guess to take it back to dancing when I was younger, I was never going to be a ballerina. Sure. <laughs> I knew that. And the reason I knew that was because I have the flattest of feet. Yeah, see. So my point in terms of me just pointing my toes mm, was mm, horrendous. It's never gonna, yeah, it's never gonna no. work. Mm. So when you're seven years old and mm. you do gymnastics and you do dancing and you clearly have flat feet, I've had orthotics since I was seven. Mm. I've always been told I'm not gonna be ballet dancer. And because I think I was told that because of my feet and not anything else, mm. it makes it different. I think yeah, your identity shifts, right? 100%. Yeah. If if I was told you're not gonna make it as a dancer because your legs are too thick, mm. probably gonna be a different reaction. Sure. So I went into dancing knowing I was never going to be a ballerina, but I was a very mm. good tapper. Tap was my mm. strength. So I was like, that's fine. Like, I don't want to be a ballerina. I actually hate ballet. Like, I'm not a fan of it anyway. This works. Boring as hell, <laughs> you know. Um, I, mean, I hope my um, dance boss doesn't listen to that because she was my ballet teacher growing up. But anyway. Um, so she probably knows. She probably would have seen. That, she yeah. But I was always a hard worker. Like, I yeah. just, you know when you're not good at something. Yeah. Um, and... So I was like, that's fine. I was good at tap. I was always a powerhouse at jazz and I was good at gymnastics. Like I competed and did quite well at gymnastics every competition that I went to. So that mm. was fine for me. Um, and I grew up, you know, it's funny. I've always been really leg dominant, quad dominant from my dancing. Mm. And I've always had a real strong lower body compared to my upper body. And going into high school, I was actually always complimented um, about my, my lower body being except for my nan, actually. My nan used to really be really bad. She used to tease me a lot. Yeah, nans are really don't have a filter. No. You want the truth? Speak to a three-year-old or speak to my nan? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I was, I was always complimented in high school. And, and I, guess, I guess I can admit this from the boys as well. Um, I was uh, always complimented on my 
probably sexualized, which is a bad thing if I look back to it now. But obviously when you're 15 and you've got all that attention from males, you kind of think you're special. Um, so yeah, I don't think that ever really had an impact. Mm. I think for me, the body confidence side of things was always came more around performance outcomes. So mm. my ability to get low to the ground and pill for the ball was a strength in rugby. Love my that. the size of my legs and the power I can generate is a positive thing in rugby. Mm. Um, you know, I I'm looked at and seen as an all player on fields, and people always ask, "Oh, how do you not get hurt?" Because mm. I'm not fearful, and because I know that I can I can take on those you know heavier girls than I am because mm. I have the strength. I've worked on that. I've trained really hard. Mm. So I think when you shift the mindset to performance away from aesthetics, it really does help. Yeah. Um, I think the issues definitely start when it's all about the aesthetic side of things. And unfortunately that is ballet. Um, and that has always been ballet. Like for those that don't know, and I guess, you know, I might get in trouble for calling this out, but you know, the Australian ballet, for example, have criteria that if one girl's leg, her calves are wider than her thighs when she's on stage, mm. it's not good enough. Mm. So when a dancer's on stage, her legs need to be the same width from hip to ankle. Now that to me is just like mind boggling. Like well, it's not controllable, right? Like this is the, well, this is it's the an thing. expectation that, yeah, that's super it, it, interesting. You know, that's, that's actually one of the criteria is that, mm. and in the Australian ballet, you walk into the room and you have to stand in front of the panelists with your leotard on, just standing straight. So no mm. flannery angles, feet, feet shoulder width apart, turn, quarter turn to the right, quarter turn to the back, quarter turn to the left, quarter turn to the front. Mm. And they, that is before you even do any dancing. Right. So you can walk into that room and be cut mm. before you get the opportunity to dance. To even perform. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, wow. like that's not okay. And I mean, mm. this this information is information from when I was doing a lot of dancing back yeah. in high school. So it may or may not have changed mm. from this point. But like, why was that ever going to be okay? How is that okay? How mm. how would that ever be okay? Even if it was twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, ten years ago, last year, it yeah. should never have been okay. It shouldn't be a criteria. It, it's just in my mind, it's not okay. And like mm. things like that are so, so harmful for so many people. And the worst part about it is a lot of the time people judging others on their body and what they look like mm. are so far from that anyway. Like, it's like, who gives you permission? Who gives you that God power to make a decision on someone's ability, athletic ability based on what they look like from first glance? 100%. And that goes for so many different like so much of the spectrum you know like I hear on the other spectrum of like oh you don't look like a runner or you couldn't run it's like how do you get to decide that before you even see me run you know and it's just it's not just for the professional athlete it's just everyone appears to have this ability to judge based on appearance before they even want to hear the story or are open to hearing the functional ability of someone. And I think that's a really important point you make. So thank you. I really love that. And I, I think on just to finish on that note is mm. that I always think about it. I've been getting into longer dis distance running. Like a lot of people I think have mm. with this lockdown. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I find running quite liberating, but I'm no, by no means fast or competitive or I don't do it for time. Like I barely use my running watch. Like I just go out and run. And then yeah. when I get tired, I come back. Like it's not, it's not a structured plan. It's just to clear my head. But a couple of times recently, I, I, I think about things quite deeply when I'm out running. And um, I was actually coming to the end of a, a half marathon distance here in Sydney. I ran down mm. to Bondi and came back. And I was going slow. Like I wasn't, like I was tired by the end of it. And I forgot how hilly it was in Sydney to Bondi. Like it's, yeah. and um, I was coming back and uh, this young guy flew past me. And I kind of had a moment of like, oh my God, like I am really going really slow. Like this is, like I'm going real slow. And I kind of sat with that for a bit. And then the next morning I woke up and I went out and I was like, oh, I just got to tick the legs over because my legs are sore. So I only went out and like I was kind of planning on going 10 minutes one way and then coming back 10 minutes. And I felt fresh for some reason and I was running pretty, pretty fast. And I ran past a lady who looked like a runner. And mm. I mean, like she had all the kit, she had her watch on, she had a, mm. you know, her gloves on, she had her sweatbands. Like she, if you looked at her from a distance, you'd be like, oh yeah, yeah she's got the kit. Like mm. she's, she's, she knows what she's doing. And I sped past her because I was running like, I was like, oh, I'm going to see how fast I can get this K. So I was pushing myself. And I, at the end of that, I kind of thought, I was like, you literally, when you're out running or exercising, you have no idea whether that person has run 40 Ks mm. and they're on yeah. their last K of that mm. or their last two Ks of a full marathon distance. Or you don't know if they're running to get a PB in a 1K. So it's like, or you don't why? know if they were only walking six months ago and now they're right. running a K, you know, Correct. like you don't know that story. So and, why, yeah, yeah. So why then are we so judgmental of ourselves, of other yeah. people? Like I get this competitiveness and don't get me wrong. Like I'm a competitive <laughs> bloody person. Like if you haven't told, like I'm competitive as hell, you know, but like, why are we so critical of people when they mm. could literally just be doing their best yeah. and it's like you don't know what they you've glanced at them like mm. I literally like if that guy if I had really realized that I'd run 21 kilometers and I was on my home stretch and no wonder I was going slow because I was tired mm. you know that guy could have been running a 5k time trial for his footy club like you just yeah. don't you just don't know so it's, it's yeah and it also doesn't matter like ourselves. yeah exactly yeah it's a comparison it's really, piece it really doesn't matter at all. Like, yeah. Movement. But it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Like, and I get it. Like I'm, I've gone through phases of overtraining so badly that mm. I've been so gun ho about getting into a team or making a starting lineup mm. that have actually been detrimental to my performance because I've just overtrained mm. and overdone it. And I'm yeah. someone that like, if I give something, I'm giving it 150%. Mm. Yeah. But I actually wrote that down as a bit of a, Point that it could be a question for you because I do see you as someone who is 110% and I would love to explore the place that you went in that point of overtraining and how you actually got yourself out of that because I think that's a place that a lot of people are probably in whether it's tr from training or whether it's from the training stresses plus all the other stresses particularly at this time that um, it may just be that overtraining isn't always training, but it's also a lack of self-care and um, recovery. So what got you to that stage? And, you know, you mentioned it, that it was a bit of a drive to succeed and um, become part of something. And what made you kind of get out of that point and recover? 
well, I don't even know if I'm a hundred percent out of it to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's okay. And I know that that's okay. I think I have, I am a very self-aware person. Like I'm, I'm, I'm almost sometimes too self-aware and almost too critical of myself. Like if I know if I've done something wrong, I own what I've done wrong and I mm. want to make sure I fix it. Um, so if I miss out on an opportunity because I didn't train the right way or I didn't, I kind of go to the extremes mm. and I'm still working through it. Like I still overtrain these days. Mm. Um, and it's not so much about my food. Like I'm good with my food, obviously. I'm... I know what I have to do, but knowing what you have to do and implementing it with regards mm. to recover, like I find recovery the probably the most challenging in terms of being motivated for it. Mm. Like I struggle. Like I, I'm naturally flexible from all my dancing and, and gymnastics as a kid. I naturally have quite big, like a lot of flexibility. I'm hypermobile. I've been told many times. So I don't feel like I need to stretch. Mm. I don't get, I don't get tired really. Like I don't really. So I kind of neglect that. I kind of neglect you know, fluids are really big one that I neglect. Um, so I'm great with my food, but fluids probably something that I probably need to improve on. Um, I don't what, know. What, I just, what thoughts go through your head in terms of recovery? Do you feel guilt around resting or, cause yeah. I, I know where you're at and I would love to explore those feelings. Cause I think a lot of people will resonate. Yeah. I'm, if you talked to Richard, um, so f- sorry for listening to my partner. If you talk to my partner, I feel guilty um, taking a day off. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that people know, like you talk to people at my boxing gym and they're like, Michaela's nuts. She'll run 10 Ks to training and then train on the pads and then be feel, feeling good. And I think I feel like I can do it because I do feel myself well mm-hmm. in terms of energy levels. Um, but I, I don't know. Like I, I feel, yeah. Recovery days are really hard for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I'm not someone that does well sitting and doing nothing. Um, I get bored really easily. I don't know. I, I really try. And I, I don't even have an answer for you. Like I don't even have a, like a, like a mind blowing answer to help other people. Cause I'm still working through it. I just think I've got to be kinder to myself when it comes to, having a break and not always saying yes and not always trying to prove a point. I think that's my issue. I try and I always want to prove people wrong. Mm. Um, and I always want people to know that I can do it no matter what, like yeah. send me a challenge and I can do it. I'm not the weakest link. Like I will prove you wrong. If you can do it one way, I can do it better. I'm very competitive. And I think that's mm. probably one of my big downfalls is it's like, I always have to be proving my, I feel like I always have to be proving myself. And that is just a complete expectation I put on myself. I know that, yeah. but it's also once again, like I know it, but it doesn't make it easier to act on it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you think you know where that's come from in terms of your, like how you grew up? Do you think you can reflect and see where that's come from? Cause I, I would find it hard for myself because I'm, absolutely hearing you mm-hmm. in every single aspect and I feel like this is something I need to work on as well um do you feel like that um expectation or having to always do better or prove yourself is something that you've always had or do you feel like it's something that's grown upon you know the years through schooling and um, beyond oh uh, I think it has a lot if not all to do with my upbringing mm-hmm. um and it's funny because it it's 
it hasn't always, it hasn't been around sport and having expectation around sport, mm. but um, I've grown up in a family where I'm the second eldest on my mum's side. And my sister is so, so intelligent. Like she's a doctor. Um, she has always been an overachiever with academics. Mm. Um, and my nan is an overachiever. Um, she has obviously, as I said earlier, gone from having no money to her name, moving to a foreign country and then becoming this very, very successful accountant, looking after multiple family members under her own roof, working three jobs, going to night school, raising two children in a foreign country. Um, to then, I don't know. I think the expectation, my mum's a school teacher and we went Mm. to primary school where she teaches and still does. So there was also this expectation in primary school that I was never in trouble because if I got in trouble, my mum would know straight away um, that I always had to do the best in terms of my grades because mum would find out straight away because a lot of her friends were my teachers. Mm. Um, I was known as a sporty kid so I had to perform well in sport in primary school because I don't know I think I went through primary school being this golden child a little bit um I was part of that cool group my best friend was the the, um school captain I was sports captain you know I've always been a part of that typical clicky um popular group but being the sporty one of that I don't know the cliche you think about the cliche high school life and primary Mm. school like I was always in that more popular group Mm. um so going from then then going into high school and wanting to prove myself in high school because I went to high school with no friends um so no one from my primary school went to my high school right so I've gone through and once I got to high school my sister was debating captain she was top of her class in all subjects Mm. so I went into high school with this expectation of being Rochelle's little sister Mm. um and she was an overachiever academically so it was expected that I was the same and whether it actually was expected I don't know Mm. um but I had that I felt that um you know my mum and dad never were angry when I didn't do well but they'd get angry if I didn't do myself proud yeah yeah so they didn't actually, and I speak about it to them quite a bit now. Like they don't actually, they never gave a shit about what my grades were. Like my dad failed you 12 because he failed his chemistry exam and your grades back then were all on your exam. So yeah, like, yeah. it wasn't about, it wasn't about being the best at something. It was about doing your best at that. Yeah, thing. I love that. Yeah. And for me doing my best was being the best. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know. That's just come from me being competitive or me wanting to match my sister in academics. And I, I mean, I think I'm probably more street smart than I am academically smart, whereas Rochelle was the opposite. Um, so I went into high school with, I felt there's like these expectations. And then obviously I was really competitive with my sport by then. I'd already been playing cricket for the state team. Um, in year eight, I was the captain of the state team. So I had these expectations that I was good at sport as well. Mm. I went to nationals for aerobics in year seven. And in year eight, I was part of the year 12 team, which was unheard of. Yeah. Um, so like I was excelling in sport at school. I don't know. I think it all just compounded to be this expectation of. Oh, Who I'm you were, I think. Yeah. It's your identity. 
yeah, it's like, oh, Michaela, like she's good at everything. Like she's good mm. at sport. Like, oh, she'll be able to do it. Like group activities in class. Oh, Michaela will do it for us. Mm. And I was like a hard worker. Like I always put the effort in. Um, but then at the same time, I also had a really active social life. So, you know, I was, I was all about the boys and I was all about going out and being sociable whether my sister wasn't. So for my yeah. parents, that was like, oh my God, like she's going to let herself down if she goes out so much, but I proved them wrong. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, no, I, like, I was very, I was out every weekend. I was probably bad. <laughs> oh, that's, don't worry. That, that was me. <laughs> I, yeah. It took me failing um, the first couple of subjects of uni to realise that I probably needed to not do that. <laughs> See, I wasn't as bad in uni. Uni, I settled down. Like yeah. I did all my rebellious mm. stuff in high school. Yeah, good job. But like, <laughs> yeah, so I think going through high school, it was, I don't know, I just always felt like I mm. had to be better. I had to do better. And then when my sister got sick, I was, I felt like I was spending for myself. So just to put it into a little bit of perspective, my sister got sick just before I started year seven. And I think that was probably the most vivid memory is I had, there was a, a parent's day at school and um, my parents couldn't come because they were at the hospital. Um, and so I was in the classroom as the only student without parents there. And I don't know why that sticks with me so much, but it does. And I think from that moment, I, I actually remember someone coming up to me and being like, oh, where's your mum and dad? And I was like, oh, um, my mum and dad can't be here. My sister's really not not well at the moment and, and her, her health is definitely more important than this one-off day anyway. Um, but I'd love to introduce you to my parents. Like when, like you've come over, like it was, it was a friend that I was trying really to make. Lovely. Yeah. And, um, and I was kind of like, you know what? Like I can do this for myself. Like, my sister needs my parents more. Like my mm. sister needs my parents so much more than I do. Like, and I, and that's okay. Like, you know, wow. one day I'll probably need them more as well. And when that kind of turned into how many years, almost six years of, um, yeah. so your whole high school basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, and don't get me wrong. Like, as I said earlier, like that's the, one of the reasons I became a dietitian because I've seen what, an eating disorder can do to a family, like the emotional side. And a lot of the time it does a lot more damage to the family than it actually does the individual. And a lot of the time the, the individual harm comes in hindsight and down the track. Um, because in the time it's really hard for, you know, someone to see that what they're doing is unhealthy because they mm. think they're doing the best for themselves. So yeah. I think um, that kind of turned into a situation where I was kind of like, you know, my mum and dad are the best mum and dad because they always do like, I cannot fault them at all. Mm. Like you ask any of my friends, my mum and dad were always the parents, the people would call if they were in trouble. So yeah. if my friends got drunk and they were scared that they were going to get in trouble from by their parents, or if something went wrong, my parents would be the ones to call. My mum would drop mm. anything four o'clock in the morning. If one of my high school friends called her and said they were in trouble, she'd be like, yeah. send me the address. I'm in, let's go. Yeah. Like they were always those sense. two people to yeah. all of my friends. So like, and I even look at them now and my mum is just like the saint, saint of everything. She'll, she'll yeah. do, she will put herself in harm's way just to make sure me and Rochelle are okay. Yeah. So I think I, I got my, a lot of my strength from both of my parents mm. seeing that all they wanted to do was to do their best for their kids. And mm. I just told myself like, I didn't need the help. I was okay. Like I could mm. do it. And I could like, I've proved like, and yeah. I think that's, that is definitely a big 
player and part of I, my certainty now. I, yeah. No matter what life throws at you, you will find it. If you want to find a way, you'll find a way. Yeah, And it's hard. That. Like, don't get me wrong. Like mm. I have been brought up in a very privileged environment, a hundred percent. And I can, I can identify my privilege, but that doesn't mean I haven't been through hard times either. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. but it's, it's, it's how you grow from those times that are the most important thing. And I've learned, I've learned that quite a bit over the last yeah. 13 years now, since, you know, 2007, when I was in mm. out of high school. Yeah. Um, what yeah. would you like, I guess for anyone at home, who's, either living through disorder eating or eating disorder or is concerned about a family member or friend this is a very you know it's common but I don't want to say that that's normal um what are some things that through living that experience that you would want to tell these people um probably two things one I think it's really important if you're living with someone that you're worried about or you feel is uh, living through disordered eating or an eating Mm -hmm. disorder Mm -hmm. is being able to identify what kind of a person you are to them Mm -hmm. so to put that in a little bit of context um uh i'll use myself as an example so i reckon back probably just before i was trying to make my first selection in rugby um i got really like oh my god i've got to get there like i'm I've got to make this team and I got into a real overtraining bad, like, and I was eating a lot. Like I was eating probably more than my dad was eating, but I was just training so much that my body was like, I like, I lost a fair bit of weight. Um, and I really couldn't, I, at the time I was like, no, like I'm performing really well. Like you don't tell, like, don't worry about me. Like, look, look at all, all that I'm doing. And it was actually my nan a beautiful nan. There she is. She turned around to me at, um, it was a Christmas mm. and we went to get a family photo mm. and my nan said, Michaela, get out of the photo. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll take it. Who, why do you want me to take it? She goes, you look gross. Get out of my photo. I don't want to post that on Facebook. Mm. So that's really, really harsh. Don't get mm. me wrong. But if anyone else in my family had said that to me, mm-hmm. it would have been the end of, I would have lost my shit, like yeah. lost my mind. The mm. fact my nan said it, mm. that was like, all right, Michaela, you've gone too far. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Reassess your situation. Mm. And the reason that was the response is because my nan has always been that person in my life to call mm. it as it is. She calls mm. the kettle black and that's mm. just her. And mm. so she, for me, that coming from her was like, okay, they're freaking hell. I got to reassess this. And mm. I did reassess. And mm. from that time on, I was like, okay, something's got to change. But if that had come from my mum, if it had come from my sister, Mm. it would have been a completely different response. So I 100%. guess the reason I'm using that example, that's a shit thing to say to someone, mm. but it came from the person that I expected it to come from. Mm. Mm. So if you're living with someone or if you're around someone that you're concerned about, try and identify who you are to that person. Um, what kind of relationship you have with that person? Because I definitely think that can um, really change the approach 
So for me, me and my sister, we're your typical sisters. We used to butt heads. We used to fist fight. I had scars on my face from when we used to muck around. But two seconds later, we'd be best friends. If you mess with my sister, there's an issue. But we can say the meanest things about each other to each other. There's not a problem with that. But as I said, if someone else says something mean to her, different story. Yeah. So being able to really identify how to approach the situation is important because if it comes in the wrong from the wrong person and is said in the wrong way, it can be more detrimental than um, helpful. So if you're someone that that person confines in, in terms of emotionally, is really open in terms of dialogue, you know, they talk, for example, if, if it's a, a sibling of yours and, you know, they always come to you for advice about their partner or their best friends and there's that real open, loving communication, then approach it in that same way. So approach it in that way of coming from a really kind space. Like, how are you doing? Like, are you, um, are you happy at the moment? You know, is there something that you really, would really love to do at the moment if you're not feeling great? You mm. don't. My biggest advice, if you're not someone that hits the nail on the head and, is, and says it how it is, don't try and go into a conversation in that way. You've mm. got to um, be open to the conversation, but approach it in a way that highlights your relationship with that person. Yeah. And I guess the second thing to say is, um, a really favorite quote of mine is this too shall pass. Um, and the reason it's a really favorite quote of mine is it highlights to me that shit times are shit, but they'll mm. pass. Mm. But it also highlights to me that good times are really good. So don't take them for granted because they'll pass as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it is a really, it can be a really dark place at, in the really low points of someone's um, disordered eating or eating disorder. And sometimes you can't do anything more than just let them know that you're there. Mm. And unfortunately, if they don't want help at that given time, there's nothing you can do to change that. So the worst thing you can do is push them too far and then make them push you away. So it's all around having that, I guess, emotional intelligence and it's hard and you'll get it wrong. Um, but if they can see that you're there to do the best for them and that you're willing to do what they think that they need, mm. that's going to be the best outcome. Um, yeah. It's hard though. Like everyone's different. Like, as mm. I said, if, if my nan had said that to my sister, it mm. would have been a very, very bad outcome. I think mm. it would have been, mm. it would have pushed her to a point where mm. she, I would be scared for her life, to mm. be completely honest. Mm. Um, it's so it's hard. So like my advice so right now, it, my advice right now could be completely irrelevant to you. Mm. Um, but I guess the biggest thing is allowing them to feel safe with you is the most important part. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I think also highlighting that um, eating disorder is a continuum it's on a spectrum and so it's not just bam there's an eating disorder there's always these symptoms and it doesn't matter like it might be really short term these the trend of disordered eating will turn into an eating disorder or it might be really long term but the big thing here is that early detection and if we can start that conversation early where they're starting to show disordered eating that is so much better than if we put it off because we're fearful mm. um, or if we don't turn to someone else for help um, because we're fearful um, and picking it up early um, with so many um, disorder, 
disorders. It's it's all about that early detection. So please don't be fearful. Please reach out. Um, there are so many um, supports around there, and I'll make sure I link some to this podcast, considering it has taken up such a significant chunk. And I'm so glad it has because that the advice and the um, life experience that you have, Michaela, has been so valuable just for me to listen to. Also, um, one thing I pick up a lot from the way you talk, and obviously our interactions uh, in the workplace as well, is your loyalty. Like your loyalty is something that I think you see family as this very wide overarching component of your life and it's not just blood relatives and I think you sum that up so beautifully with um, your friendship groups and how you interact within that family environment and um, we just feel so so grateful that you are part of the team um, you add so much conversation which is <laughs> you add a lot of storytelling but you also add a, a beautiful perspective um, and you also are so considerate um, about all your responses so I really do love that now because you did this with all the other podcasts it is time for a quick fire um, <laughs> because it's just a necessity we've got to keep it consistent a little bit so if you were to have a superpower what would it be uh, I can't believe you haven't thought of this considering you've asked us all <laughs> the thing is I overthink yeah, this is my problem. This is why I didn't answer the question. I had to... That one, like, I want to say... Just go back in time. Ooh. Oh, I really want to ask you why, but I won't. Um, <clears throat> what did you want to be growing up? A teacher. Ah, from your mum. I, like, I feel like my mum made me say that so often that it became like... I'm yeah. still a dance teacher, so I'm technically a teacher mm. and an educator, a coach. Yeah. I think I just wanted to be, I just wanted to help people with mm. whatever the form that that would be. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and I'd love to ask this question. I know it's ruining the quick fire, but dietetics is a really hard profession in the way that you graduate and job prospects are pretty lacking, shall we say, and a challenge for someone who has always valued themselves on succeeding and exceeding expectation how did you find those first you know the first year of finding a job after graduating um I found out very quickly in my master's that I wasn't going to be a traditional dietitian mm -hmm. I knew yep. I could have told you from day one I would not do mm -hmm. clinical dietetics mm -hmm. I knew I was not going to be fitting into the mold of the traditional dietetic world mm -hmm. um I came I was very okay starting my master's knowing that the knowledge around nutrition I was going to get was only just going to be a tool in my toolbox to coach and support. And because mm. um, I was always a PT, I did an mm. exercise sports science. I always had the athlete's perspective. I just knew that I didn't care if I could call myself a dietitian or not because I, mm. I knew I wasn't going to work clinically. I just wanted to be there for people that needed my help. Mm. so I think I came out of my master's going being okay with not being a traditional dietitian if it didn't come about like obviously yeah. I was still looking for work and still looking mm. for a job but I think my purpose in terms of what I want to do in my career is just be a part of something bigger than myself where mm. I could have an influence on other people's lives in a positive way whatever that may be whether that's um, being a coach, whether that's being a traditional dietitian in terms of servicing. Um, obviously, we still don't do the traditional dietetic side of things at Compete. 
Um, but whether that's being servicing, whether that's being part of a team that's working towards a common goal of helping people, which compete is, mm. I knew in my bones, I knew the core of me that that is what I would do as a career, whatever mm. that might look like. So I don't yeah. think I was hell bent yeah. on being a dietitian in the sense of what traditionally people see a dietitian mm. as. And, and I think probably having hundred percent because you didn't have the definition of success that others do when they graduate. I love that. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I'm so glad I asked. Sorry about <laughs> ruining the quick fire, but I am. Um, and if you were to have dinner with anyone, who would it be? And what would you eat in terms of cuisine? Anyone in the world living or dead? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's do that. My pop, Michael. Oh, yes. Nice. So you would never have met Pop, would you? No. No. So, yeah, Pop Michael and cuisine. Oh, who knows? Parmigiana. It's not even a cuisine, it's a meal. I don't know. It's a cuisine itself. Parmigiana and chips, you can't go wrong. Do you pair it with veggies or salad? Neither, chips. Just chips. <laughs> what about at the pub when they're like chips and salad? Or... No, because the salad's never good. Oh, the salad's never so good. I just I'm with I you. Get chips and salad and then not eat no, it. Just don't <laughs> eat it. Come on. No, if I'm Love going it. for a pub meal, I'm getting chips and salad, definitely not eating the salad because the tomatoes Perfect. are always mushy and the dressing sucks. Oh, the dressing. What is the dressing? It's like a creamy meal. yuck. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Oh, and it gets yeah. on the chips. It's yeah. Awful. And then and then donuts for dessert for sure. Bowen Canteen. Ooh. Anyone in Melbourne, if you want good donuts, Bowen Canteen on Whitehorse Road in Bowen, you will thank me later. And try their staff pick chicken burger because you will not be disappointed. Well, that's a pretty good recommendation. We'll have to tag them. We'll put in that podcast. in the notes. We'll put it in the notes. Um, and. <laughs> What donut are we talking? Like, are we talking like old school cinnamon donut or are we talking something I a little bit more fancy? Wasn't, I wish this wasn't a podcast because I'd show you mm. this. All right. PB&J is my go-to yeah, um, nice. from them, but they do a mean vanilla custard. They do a mean Oreo cream. Wow. All, right. all of them. Just go. You will not be disappointed. They're doing takeaway still, even with the lockdowns in Melbourne. You can get it Uber Eats. Support your local businesses. I hope I get a sponsorship after this because I just want free donuts. <laughs> I spend so much money there. But if you go there, tell them, you'll see Callum on the desk and he will he will know who's sending you. Michaela <laughs> sent you. Oh, you're a gem. Oh, anyway, we'd better go because this was our prediction that we'd go over time. And my laptop's about to die as well. It's on one. And where Dan will kill us because we're meant to be in a meeting. So Let's wrap this up. Michaela, you're an absolute superstar. I am so glad I got the opportunity to chat to you today. Um, Bloody grateful daily for you to be part of our team. And of course, we will now talk again at our meeting, but I hope everyone else enjoyed getting to know Michaela. Um, And yeah, any questions, just shoot them through because this girl likes to chat. So if you didn't know, reach out. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Legends. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. I hope you didn't mind all of our waffling on and I hope there was some real nuggets of gold that have resonated with you or you have found a lot of value in. I know I did. I learned so much during our chat and um, 
definitely found a newfound respect in a lot of areas, um, not only for Michaela personally, but also in that journey of eating disorder. So if that um, really did trigger some emotion, um, some concern or anxiety for you, please either reach out to us in a private message so that we can refer you on to the right support network, or we have also linked the Butterfly Foundation within the description of this podcast um, to allow you to really um, reach out and gain the right support for you moving forward. Uh, it, on the other side of things, if um, you know you are a sports dietitian by chance and you have listened to Michaela's story and you're like, man, I would like to be part of that team, then we always are looking and wanting to increase our um, dietitian support pathways. So please reach out, um, fill out the expression of interest form over on our website. We would love to hear from you and we love expanding our um, network. So please do that. Uh, and on the other side of things, if you'd like to start working with Michaela, like this chick is epic to work with. Um, and so if you would like to work with a dietitian um, and start your journey on improving your overall well being, um, but also your performance in life or in sport, please reach out. We would love to hear from you uh, and we can't wait to connect. So we've got a free assessment over on our website. It's usually Michaela that will get back to you in person from that free assessment. So that is your best place to start www.compete with an EAT.com um, to get started. Cheers. Thank you.